Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. I'm going to read this as we go through. We have a lot to cover today. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of the resurrection of Christ and how that great truth changes everything. Bring us to the cross. Show us the empty tomb. Bring us your grace. Open our eyes. Change our hearts. Change our lives. Have mercy upon us. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus this Easter. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Gladiator and are now wondering why I'm mentioning this on Easter. But it's a great movie starring Russell Crowe as one of the great monologues of modern times. There is this dramatic scene when the main character, thought to be a slave, standing in the middle of the arena, removes his helmet, hiding his face, and is revealed to be a Roman general. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, loyal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I love it. It's awesome. And he does get his vengeance, but at the cost of his own life. Now, shortly thereafter, there's another scene, and if you'll see it, you'll be able to picture it where Russell Crowe is about to die. And when he's about to die, he kind of hovers above the ground, and he's going to be taken into the bliss of whatever comes after death. And his new love tells him to let go and go be with his murdered wife and son who are waiting for him in the afterlife. It's a very unreal moment. But I think it has become something of a typical view. There are a lot of people who don't believe they're justified by faith, what they believe, even if they understand the doctrine. Similarly, a lot of people don't believe they're justified by works, what they do or what they think they deserve. For the most part, people, at least many of them, believe that all you have to do is die. And that's enough. That's it. You know, in all my years of ministry, I've never been to a home after someone has passed away where they didn't ask me something to the effect of, they're in a better place, aren't they? They're in a better place. Even if they're completely non-religious people, even if the deceased was not a particularly good person, simply put, they believe in justification by death. Now, as you can imagine, the Apostle Paul might have some issues with that view. And hopefully all those who claim to be followers of Christ would also have some issues with that view. 
The idea of people somehow being acceptable before God, which is really what justification is, being made acceptable before God, apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, is not new, it's not novel, it's not original, and it's not particularly helpful. And that it strips us of our hope and it rebukes our faith. The idea that we don't need a redeemer and we don't need the redemption he offers, but nonetheless we are still in and of ourselves worthy of being redeemed is a heresy far older than any of us. Attempts to create a Christianity without a resurrection began early in church history. Paul had to confront this very problem uh, in the Corinthian church. His rebuke to the Corinthians is as relevant today as it was then. It may be more relevant today because what was a local problem is now an epidemic in the church. Here we find members of the early Christian community who denied life after death. Their rejection was categorical and absolute. They insisted there was no resurrection from the dead. No one, they claimed, not even Jesus, survives the grave. And Paul responded to this view by demonstrating the radical inconsistency and utter absurdity of a Christian faith without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to trace the apostle's argument point by point as he spells out the logical implications of no resurrection. And he does this by mounting a series of negative implications and follows an irresistible logic, starting with the implications of unbelief. The implications of unbelief. That should be the first blank there, starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The apostle begins by hitting the Corinthians with a crucial question, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he goes on to answer his own question, and he does it by making a sequence of six points, beginning in verse 13. They're there in your uh, uh, bulletin insert. Point one, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Who can argue with his logic? A universal negative proposition, no resurrection of the dead, 
allows for no exceptions. You can't have none coupled with some. The conclusion cannot be refuted. If A is true, then B must also be true. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then manifestly Christ is not risen. On to verse 14.2. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Here Paul sets himself against all forms of liberalized Christianity that seek to deny the resurrection of Christ on the one hand, but continue to preach and call people to faith on the other hand. You might say this is a foolish attempt to have one's cake and eat it too. He views this as an exercise in futility. Without a real bodily resurrection, Christian preaching is in vain, which means empty and useless. It's not a false dilemma. He sees the issue as a genuine case of either or. Either Christ is raised or preaching and faith is in vain. On verse 15 and point three, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If ever the apostle runs the risk of insulting his readers by pointing out the obvious, it's right here. For him to add that, the last part of the sentence there in verse 15, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised, is to spell out the obvious conclusion. Nothing simpler to understand here uh, than this. If the dead do not rise, then Christ did not rise. And his reasoning is, if Christ is not raised, then Paul and all the other apostles have to be judged as false prophets and false teachers to deny the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection, while at the same time extolling their virtues as teachers of ethics, is to praise folly. It puts them in the same company as the false prophets of the Old Testament. And the apostle himself sees this as a hopeless contradiction. He saw himself disqualified as a trusted teacher if his witness to the resurrection is false. So Paul not only puts his own reputation and integrity on the line, he puts all the apostles' reputation and integrity on the line. It's as if Paul said, take me or leave me on this point. If this is true, it's all true. But if this isn't true, then none of it's true. We're all in on this doctrine. But if you're not all in on this doctrine, then you got a big problem. And he gives it to us in verse 17.4. And if Christians have not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Again, he presses home this point about futility. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith is futile. It's useless, a waste of time, energy, and devotion. To believe in a false hope is to set the heart on a course for ultimate disappointment. Without the resurrection, we are left with no hope. And all we have to show for our spiritual pilgrimage is unresolved guilt. Now, this is why Paul tells the church uh, in 1 Thessalonians 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. No resurrection, no hope. Paul saw the resurrection as God's sign of his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice as an atonement for our sins, declaring him to be the Son of God and Lord of all. Romans 1, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, if he was not raised, we remain in our sins. We have no Savior. Both our faith and Christ's death are equally useless. We remain debtors who cannot pay our debts. We have no hope if there is no resurrection, and if we have no hope, then neither do our loved ones who have passed away before us. Which brings us to verse 18 and point 5. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Of all the negative implications of no resurrection, this is perhaps the most grim. And Paul doesn't shrink from the brutal conclusion No resurrection means that death brings the end of all hope for everyone, everywhere, for all time. In his majestic epic poem, The Divine Comedy, Dante Alighieri imagined a sign posted on the doorway of hell, and it said, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Paul places that sign right here in verse 18, right now. But it's not posted at the gate of hell. It's posted at the door of the funeral home. Every person who has lost a loved one knows that emotional hope that abides, that lasts, that hope without which we would crumble. It is the hope that somewhere, sometime, someday, we will see our loved ones again. That hope is the consolation we cling to when death separates us from our loved ones. Every funeral I do, I preach about this. And again, it's exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And yet Paul reasons if Christ is not raised then those who have died have perished forever and we grieve as those who have no hope. And then Paul wraps up this list of dreadful consequences in verse 19.6. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul could hardly have protested louder against all the attempts to construct a Christian religion without the bodily resurrection of Christ. If the value of Christian hope is restricted to this life, then we're like the most miserable people there are. And the misery is this. Without the resurrection, we live a life based on a false hope. Hope controls us, involves an ethic of postponed reward, an ethic of present sacrifice for the sake of future reward. And if there is no future reward, if there is no future resurrection, then it's a false hope and we got nothing to look forward to. All the sad things remain. Evil isn't accounted for. Nothing is made right. And so Paul is saying if there is no resurrection, 
And if you're hostile towards Christians, you should exchange your hostility for pity. Christians who live with false hope need pity because they're the most pitiable. Is that even a word? The most miserable of people. And if you're too modern, too educated, too enlightened to believe in the resurrection, well, then Paul says, you know, we need to stop preaching. We need to stop worshiping. Stop sending missionaries. Stop planting churches. Stop sharing the gospel. Let's just quit and go home because it's just a colossal waste of time. Now, I realize this whole section is all pretty depressing on Easter. But thankfully, we're not done. Because just as there are implications of unbelief, so there are implications of belief. Implications of belief, starting at verse 20. And we begin with one of the most hope-filled verses in the entire Bible. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. (coughs) For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Meaning God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So basically saying everything comes under Christ except for God the Father. That's sort of what that whole sort of riddle-sounding ending means. So here are the precious consequences of the risen Christ. Look at Paul's been arguing the way his logic works. He has pressed the Corinthians to understand that their general principle, no resurrection of the dead, has implications when applied to the particular, the resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection of the dead, no resurrection of Jesus. Well, now, as he's responding to that error... He flips it and begins with the particular, the resurrection of Jesus, and he works to the general, the implications for all of us. And he starts by pointing us to the first fruits. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That has implications, he says, for you and me. That expression, first fruits, is important. So representative sample of the greater whole that's uh, inevitably coming. It's language used in Leviticus as the first fruits of the harvest was dedicated to God at the temple. It's a sample of the great harvest to come. And Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, a representative sam- sample of the great harvest of resurrections that will come. There's an inevitability to this if you're a Christian. If Christ has been raised, we'll all be raised. It's sort of like train couplings. You know how they connect the cars of a train together? All of them are ultimately linked to the engine. 
And wherever the engine goes, the train follows behind. And we're linked to Christ. And as he's been raised, so we'll be raised. There's a certainty to it. He even tells us the nature of that link uh, between us and Christ. Look at verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He makes a parallel between Adam and Christ. Christians, Paul says, stand in relation to Christ in the same way that humanity stands in relation to Adam. God entered into a covenant with Adam. He's our federal head, our representative figure, acting on behalf of all humanity. Sort of like government officials today enter into a treaty representing the United States. Their actions, their representative actions, have far-reaching implications for every citizen in the land. And Adam is acting as our representative. When he failed to keep the covenant, when he broke it by eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he fell into sin and misery And the confession tells us, and we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And as a consequence, we died. We died. Death is the wages of sin, the curse of the covenant. And so in Adam, Paul says, all die. But praise God, because another one has come. One greater than Adam, the true and better Adam, the second Adam. And Christ has come, and as the second Adam... He did what the first Adam couldn't do. He kept the covenant with God. He obeys perfectly. With him, God is well pleased. More than that, he not only keeps the covenant himself, he pays the penalty for Adam's covenant breaking. He pays the penalty for your covenant breaking, for my covenant breaking, so that the covenant curse, death itself, is satisfied. It's poured out on Christ at the cross in our place. So now we read, in Christ all shall be made alive. If we're in Christ, Christ's resurrection makes our resurrection not a possibility, but an inevitability. And look quickly at verse 24 through 28. Because Paul wants to do more than simply give us theology. He wants to paint a picture of what's going to happen at the last day. He wants us to long for that day so that we'll cry out with the Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. So here's the order of things. First of all, Christ, the first fruits, has risen on the third day, and then when he returns, those who belong to Christ shall rise, and then comes the end. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. So when Jesus comes back, he'll take the church to glory and judge the world in righteousness. Meanwhile, look at verse 25. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When death itself is undone at the resurrection of the dead, then at last Christ's mission is finished. And he will hand the kingdom to the Father so that God will be all in all. Imagine that moment. What if it's today? 
what if it comes at the end of the surface and we open the doors in the back and we're making our way out and all of a sudden the trumpet sounds and we hear the voice of an archangel and the sky splits before the blazing majesty of our returning king and every eye sees him and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye made it last like him. I can't wait for that. And the dead in Christ shall rise, and sin is gone, and sadness is gone, and weariness is gone, and hurting bodies and tired minds are gone, and we are made like him. For we shall see him as he is, and we should long for that day. That's what Paul wants to happen. He wants you to say, come, Lord Jesus. I long for your coming. I'm not living for here, but for hereafter. My horizon's not down here. I'm looking for the world that is yet to come. I do not have hope only for this life. My hope is a resurrection hope. And so the Apostle Paul counters the implications of unbelief with the implications of belief. And if he had only stopped there, I wouldn't have to address the next section, which would have made my life a lot easier. Because this section is confusing at best, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. And the only thing I came up with that makes sense and still fits the context is that Paul is responding to ways they've been deceived by false teachers. And he wants them to see how the resurrection counters these false teachings. And so we have the implications of deceit. The implications of deceit. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. The dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Since Paul is once again refuting false teaching, I'm going to pick up from those points of correction in the first section, because he has three more corrections for the Corinthians, since apparently they've been deceived by false teachers. And so the next point, (coughs) excuse me, That needs correcting comes in verse 29.7. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Well, Paul continues to show the radical inconsistency of these people who practice baptism for the dead. Now, this passing mention of baptism for the dead is the only New Testament reference to any such practice. And it has evoked all kinds of confusion and consternation. There's about 40 different interpretations of this verse. My favorite one comes from the late Dr. Simon Kistemacher, a revered professor from Reformed Theological Seminary, who said, and I quote, In all humility, I confess that the sense of the text escapes me. I love that. Yet having said that, The point that Paul makes is quite clear, even if the way he illustrates it is not. If there's no resurrection, baptism means nothing. 
And what I think he's trying to say, if there's no bodily resurrection, no abolishing of death and handing all things over to the Father, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they being baptized for them? He neither condemns or commends the practice. He just acknowledges that it's absurd if there's no resurrection. On one hand, if you're saying there's no resurrection and you're doing this thing over here, it makes no sense. It's kind of like all the people standing up at the seventh inning stretch and singing God Bless America even though they don't believe in God. You're kind of like, why are they doing that? To baptize the dead if there's no resurrection is both a waste of time and a waste of water. So he then moves on to his own ministry, questioning why some would endure hardship for something he knew wasn't true. And by implication, why would anyone in Corinth suffer for Christ if there's no resurrection? And so he asks, starting at verse 30, point number 8, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? So here the apostle turns to his own ministry as evidence of his conviction that the resurrection makes sense of his own trials, his own hardship, his own suffering. He affirms his position by testifying that his ministry, the apostle Paul, from the greatest Christian ever, would be worthless apart from the resurrection. For a summary of all the suffering he endured, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where it's all listed there. (coughs) Now, an appeal to Paul's devotion to ministry, his willingness to die for his faith, doesn't prove conclusively that that faith is valid. What it does show Sorry. Doctor told me about 20 minutes in, I'm going to start coughing, and there's nothing I can do about it. So, guess what? What we have, <coughs> what we have here is that Paul's behavior is consistent with what we might expect from someone who's an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. What's true of Paul is true of all the apostles. They lived and died in the full confidence of the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul wraps up this second list of uh, implications. The end of verse 32.9, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Cuts through all the trappings of the false teachers, the weird religious sentimentality, the dreadful consequences of unbelief. He says, if there's no life after death, The only sensible lifestyle is to be a blatant hedonist. We might as well grab all the pleasure we can before we're swallowed up by the final pain. It's an apostolic anticipation of uh, modern skepticism. Grab all the gusto you can because you only go around once. Or whoever dies with the most toys wins, which is stupid because they still die. That is, after all, all that can be had. If Christ is not risen. Just death. So why endure suffering? Why press on in the midst of suffering? Why not simply live for pleasure and to minimize pain? To do everything we can to get away from it. 
If Christ hasn't been raised, suffering is empty and meaningless, and our service is empty and meaningless. But if Christ has been raised, and he has, then my suffering and service takes on new significance. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's all worth it. Because he lives, I can keep going. Suffering only makes sense if the tomb is empty and Christ is triumph. But he leaves us with a challenge. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's talking about false teachers. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He wants them to see that doctrine, good or bad, has implications. And the implications of bad doctrine, there is no resurrection, will ultimately lead to an immoral life. These people, we know the church in Corinth, there are all kinds of sin and division, idolatry, immorality. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. We're not pointing them out and saying, be like them. We've seen that for 14 plus chapters. Paul wants you to know there's a connection between what you believe and how you live. And so now Paul calls them to the firm conviction that Christ is risen and this world is not our home. His re resurrection is the first fruits of the final harvest into which all of us are going to be swept up. If you're bound for a heavenly kingdom, if you're citizens of another world, then you're called to live here in such a way to make that apparent. To live like citizens who don't belong here, but who belong there. Where Christ is. Where one day we will be also. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are strangers in a strange land. This world is not your home. You are to live here as someone who belongs there. Who makes it plain that you're a citizen of another country, a heavenly one. So Paul says, don't go on sinning. Stop living as though the old life characterizes you. Live the resurrection life that's yours and will be yours in all its fullness when Christ comes. But you and I both know we don't always live that way. Certainly there are a lot of people in Corinth who didn't live that way. And part of the reason they didn't is because they didn't believe in the resurrection. No resurrection, no hope. Without hope, we're just left in our guilt and sin and shame. We're passengers on the Orient Express. And Agatha Christie's famous novel, Murder on the Orient Express, her detective, Hercule Poirot, is stuck on a train in a snowdrift, and a man is murdered, and he's trying to figure out who the murderer is, world's greatest detective. He's on the train with 12 other passengers. So which of the 12 has committed the murder? It's a classic whodunit. He's trying to figure it out. It's the hardest case he's ever had. Because all the clues point in different directions. And he realizes he's missing something. What's the key insight that will make sense of this situation? Well, a surprise answer. I'm going to tell you, if you complain about spoilers, this book's been out for 80 years. Okay? I mean, if you haven't read it, if you haven't seen any of the three movies, I don't want to hear it. So here's the key insight. 
everyone done it. All 12 people murdered the man. And suddenly everything makes sense. They're all the villains. They're all the murderers. They're all in it. This is the clue the gospel gives you without which your life won't make sense. Society won't make sense. History won't make sense. We're all in it. No one is righteous. No, not one. We're under the penalty of Adam, which means we're in desperate need of the second Adam. Tim Keller has written, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? If Jesus really defeated death, that gives credence to every claim he made. And if Jesus didn't defeat death, then every claim he made is proven false. The famous historian Jaroslav Pelikan said, If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Specifically about the doctrine of the resurrection, Keller said, I like the doctrine of the resurrection because it's just as hard and harsh and sharp as life itself. In other words, the resurrection has a sharp edge. When it evaluates life, there's something very hard about what it says. If Christ is bodily raised from the dead, a real historical event, that should change everything. We have both hope and joy. It changes the way we view ourselves, the world, our neighbors, creation, God, and history. It changes everything. But if Jesus Christ were not bodily raised from the grave, then Christianity has nothing to say. No hope, no joy, no wisdom, no inspiration. It's just an optimistic pile of stories. But if it's true, then hope is real. And the resurrection tells a story with a happy ending. The end of redemptive history is this. God wins. And all those who are in union with Christ win along with him. We will renew, he will renew the entire world to make it the way it's supposed to be. He's going to undo all of the disintegration and all the discrimination. The resurrection is a picture of what the future will look like. Why do we have difficulty dealing with suffering? We have difficulty dealing with death, with losing money or a career or health. Because we think this broken world is the only world we're going to have. And we need greater certainty than that. And the Apostle Paul is saying that greater certainty has been given through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We inherit this resurrection as a gift, a power that's already inherited by faith in Christ that helps us look death and suffering in the eye and see hope. Death will not have the victory because of what Jesus has done. Jesus lost everything for us so that ultimately we can't lose anything. Today is Easter Sunday. Today is the day we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty, Holy and True, the king and head of the church, the bright morning star, the root of Jesse, the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, the lamb of God who sits on the throne, 
the Emmanuel who saves his people from their sins. Christ is risen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Thank you that you have spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes so we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Heavenly Father, we confess that we sometimes listen to the false teachers and have to endure dreadful consequences. Help us build our lives on the great truth of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that Christ is alive. Thank you that he sits at your right hand. Thank you that one day the last enemy shall be destroyed, death itself, and all things placed in subjection to him. Thank you that one day he'll come and triumph in the open display of his great glory. How we long for that day. We pray for grace now to persevere, to live as citizens of the world yet to come, and not to put down roots into the toxic soil of this world. Thank you, Father, that on Easter we have this massive truth the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It really happened. And because of that, we can face death. We can face our past. Most of all, we have a Savior who is real. Not manufactured from our own hearts, but a Savior that comes to us and makes us yours, makes us your children, makes us who we have always wanted to be. We pray, Father, you would help us take heart that the resurrection is so we can walk in the footsteps of the one who died and rose again. So we pray for grace to embrace the truth as it's found in our risen Savior, that we as a church might be to the praise of your glory in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving
Receive God's blessing from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Have a great Easter.